This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined once again by my colleague and friend and tax museum curator, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Here I am. He's always here. He's always happy, and he's always ready to go. And today we are not going to let him talk about the museum. Jeff, what are we going to talk about we are going to talk about the Tax Reform Act of 1986. So uh, just a little bit of tiny introduction. So if you remember back in 2017, Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And as we were passing that act, it was widely said that this is like the biggest tax reform since 1986, since the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Now, 1986, I was three years old. Scott was older than that because he's I was, older than I was, me. I was eight years old. Eight. So Scott, I'm sure, has fond memories of TRA 86, but I, I don't remember it at all. And so we thought it'd be useful to actually bring somebody who was kind of a, a player on the scene in 1986 and can answer some questions we have about TRA 86. And so we have with us Ken Keys. Ken, can you, or Keys, can you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Ken Keys. I'm a tax lawyer in Washington. Um, in addition to being in private practice, I've worked in government twice. First, uh, from 81 to 87 on the Ways and Means staff and during the 86 Act. In, in the 81 Act, the 82 Act, the 84 Act, the 83 Social Security Act. Um, and then I was chief of staff of the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is the primary technical staff for Congress for both the House and Senate that both writes tax legislation and does revenue estimates, which is kind of a big deal and does distributional analysis, which is also kind of a big deal. And I was there from 95 uh, to 98. Uh, you know, Ken, just for people who are listening and might be curious, we actually recorded an episode a few weeks ago about scoring. And uh, so if people are interested to know what Ken's talking about, like more details on just the scoring side of things. On the re- the revenue estimates. Revenue That's estimates. Different terms yeah. for this, yeah. Exactly, yep. Yeah, well, thank you, Ken, so much for... Uh, uh, joining us, and uh, obviously Ken has been deeply involved in what was happening in uh, several tax reforms, but primarily today we want to focus on 1986. So, where to begin? Maybe um, let's just talk about that cut, maybe in relation to what was happening in 2017. Can you maybe just give us an idea? How were they different, just in terms of the political climate? Pretty big differences, I think, in 1986 versus 2017. So, so the, <clears throat> a lot of differences. Um, in terms of the substance of the two bills, I would say the 86 Tax Reform Act was a complete relook at the Internal Revenue Code uh, for the first time since the 54 Code. And so it was a three year process in which there were hearings on. Every sector. So this started in like 1983. It started in 84 when Reagan gave his State of the Union address in January of 84 and called for tax reform and asked for Treasury to do a study. And he wisely asked Treasury to deliver the study in December of 84 
which meant it was after his reelection. So it took the issue sort of and iced it during his reelection campaign. And then Treasury delivered the study in 84. And that's when things went from there. And I can give you the whole sort of timeline. Uh, but it was all the way up until October 22nd of 1986 when Reagan signed the bill. So that, so that first difference you talk about, just the, the kind of long run-up, I think is super interesting. I mean, with the TCGA, it was just a matter of months that, that it was taken to pass it. And with the Build Back Better Act, which which didn't pass and, and likely won't pass, pieces of it might, but the whole thing probably won't pass, it was also just tried to like be, get pushed through very, very quickly. So why do you why do you think that difference? I mean, why was it able to persist for so long and still end up passing? I think a lot of people would think with the Build Back Better Act, one of the problems was that it was allowed to linger too long, and that's what, what killed it. Well, there's a lot of different views about that. Some views about Build Back Better is that it was a bunch of – it's not the tax part that's controversial about Build Back Better for the most part. Now, you know, it's the spending parts. Now, the, the initial tax proposals were – Controversial because they were increases in individual rates and corporate rates. And Kirsten Cinema, the senator from uh, Arizona, who's one of the key Democrats, if they're ever going to pass anything, basically said no. So with the Ways and Means Committee and the House ultimately passed last fall, those tax provisions, while they're not insignificant, the, other than minimum book tax, which is controversial, um, it, it, it's it's not. That, that's not a source of a lot of controversy. It's the social spending side. And it, it's not just the social spending side. It's the fact that it's coming on the heels of a $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus bill that was passed last March and a $500 billion to a trillion, depending on how you counted it, infrastructure bill that was passed last fall. And people like Manchin are very concerned about impact on inflation. And today's inflation number that came out, which is 7.5%, it's kind of blown away the whole theory from last summer that it's transitory. You know, if it's transitory, uh, we're in for a long transitory period. But um, so there's a lot of reasons why why Build Back Better stalled. Now, not the least of which is unlike the 86 Tax Reform Act, which was bipartisan, um, Build Back Better is a entirely partisan exercise. And one lesson people learn around here <clears throat> early on is it's hard to pass major pieces of legislation, no matter what the subject matter, on a totally partisan basis. And even if you can pass it, uh, the sustainability of it um, is not great uh, because the pendulum swings back and forth and parties in control of Congress Sometimes they go out of control. Um, 86 Reform Act, 99% of it was done on a bipartisan basis. Um, it was, it was and, and remember, we had a Republican president working with a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives with a chairman, Rosinkowski, who was a moderate Democrat, and a Republican-controlled Senate. So if anything was going to get done, it had to be bipartisan. So would you would you say... I guess I'm just curious to get your uh, feel or your perspective on the political climate because it feels like in today's political climate, nothing happens in a bipartisan way, or I shouldn't say nothing. I know the infrastructure bill was, but it seems like very little bipartisan conversation. Was it just a different climate or was the tax code so obsolete in the 80s that 
everybody agreed it needed to be changed? Well, I'd say it was both. I mean, you had a president, a Republican president, who led the charge to get it. And you had a Democrat-controlled House, and in particular, Rosinkowski was a key guy here, who wanted to make a deal. Um, and the partisanship that exists today. So, so I, I tell people, I've actually been around Washington a long time, but I wasn't here for the Civil War. So my guess is things were even uglier then, but um, it's the partisanship today is, is very nasty. And um, what's happened over time is the ideological divide between, particularly in the House, the Senate's a little different, but in the House, the ideological divide has deepened because Republicans have gained seats and they actually miraculously gained seats in the 2020 election when their presidential candidate was going down, but they've gained seats by beating moderate Democrats. Democrats have gained seats by beating moderate Republicans. And so what you've seen over a period of time is a wider and wider divide. But there's another divide. If you take the top three leaders on the Democrat side, Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn, <coughs> and compare them with the top three leaders on the Republican side, which is McCarthy, Scalise, and Stefanik, there's an 80-year age difference. 80 years. So there's not just an ideological divide. There's a generational divide. And I'm not even sure <clears throat> they speak the same language. Um, you know, so it, it's it's a different world in Congress today. And I'd like to tell you that on the horizon, I see bipartisanship coming back, but I, I well, don't. So at some point, uh, the age divide has to go away because it turns out people don't last forever. And they'll likely be replaced by younger people. Although sometimes with certain people in Congress, I'm starting to wonder if they do last forever. Yeah, they've got some uh, kind of special juice or something. Well, to, to your point, um, uh, it is widely believed in Washington, and there's a long time between now and November 8th, but it's widely believed the Republicans will take control of the House. And it's widely believed that the three Democrat leaders, who I mentioned, will probably leave. Because if you've been in the majority, particularly if you've been in leadership in the House, and all of a sudden you're in the minority, it's rotten. Uh, because unlike the Senate, where being in the minority, you still have a lot of power. In the House, the reality is the minority has very little power. So if I'm right about my predictions here, then you're going to have a whole new leadership group uh, among House Democrats. Uh, it's widely believed that Hakeem Jeffries, who I believe is from New York, who's probably in his 40s, uh, will be the next leader of Democrats. So we may see a generational shift on the Democratic side, um, which is frankly has been long overdue. Um, yeah. You know, so with sorry. So uh, no, go ahead. I mean, as we're just talking about these different acts, it might be useful just to talk about what exactly was in TR eighty six. So when we talk about the TCGA in two thousand seventeen, you know, for example, the, the biggest thing is the corporate rate, corporate statutory rate dropped. Um, what were just some of the key components of TRA-86? Well, so TRA-86 was what people I would say describe as classic tax reform, which was broaden the base and lower rates. Economists generally believe that a tax system is much more efficient if you eliminate tax preferences that shape people's economic decisions in ways that are not motivated by the business choice, 
but by the tax choice, um, that you don't have a very efficient tax system. So 86 was a classic broaden the base, lower rates. Now, the different one of the big differences between it and 2017, 2017 was a net tax cut of billions, okay? The 86 Tax Reform Act was revenue neutral. Uh, many people forget that. It increased over five years taxes on corporate side by $120 billion, which, by the way, at the time was real money, and reduced taxes on the individual side by $120 billion. Um, but because corporate taxes are actually paid by people, um, the reality, a revenue-neutral bill was basically not a net tax cut of much for anyone, but it reshaped how the government raised revenue um, with lower rates and a broader base. I mean, so so that was that was the classic footprint of what people thought of as tax reform back then. Now, when you say broaden the base, what were some of the provisions, like exceptions to the base or, or things that were added back to the base to, to broaden the base in the 86 Act? Well, so for example, it eliminated the preference for capital gains. Um, for corporations? It, it, no, for, for individuals. individuals. Um, and as a result... Remember I said it was signed into law October 22nd? The capital gains increase took effect January 1 of 87. A couple months to, to act. Huge market sell-off. Yeah. I mean, so huge capital gain revenues came in at the end of 86, and then it, they went down dramatically in 87 because people had uh, done sales that they would have otherwise put off to a later point in time. So that was a big deal. Um in terms of uh, another kind of major change was enactment for the first time of what's now called the passive loss rules, um, which was uh, targeting tax shelters, um, a very fundamental and complicated set of rules um, targeted at a number of tax shelters, including real estate shelters. Um, and, and there are many people who would argue that the real estate crash that occurred in 88 was a result of the passive loss rules. I'm not one of those people because I think I, I actually represented the FDIC on a number of their failed banks when I was back in private practice. And what we saw was those banks were failing not because of the crash and the value of real estate. They were failing because there were appraisers who had done just fraudulent work in terms of valuing properties to then support loans that really made no sense whatsoever given the real value of those properties. But that's my view, and there's a widely held view that the passive loss rules were responsible. And one of the things about the passive loss rules that was a, um, a, a difference from the way Congress had generally acted is they were largely retroactive. Um, they, they applied to existing investments. There was a phase-in period. Um, and I think a lot of people look back at that decision and basically say, you know, that maybe we shouldn't have done that on a retroactive basis. Because uh, generally, Congress doesn't like retroactive legislation. Um, uh, that, that, and that's Republicans and Democrats. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. Um, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of changes in the international area, pension area. Um, but, but the big pieces, if you, th there's a document that I would refer you to, it's called the blue book. Yep. Why? Because it's blue. It actually used okay. to be a blue book and people uh, actually used to have it. Okay. So this is the blue book from the 86 act. 
Um, and in addition to describing all the provisions, it also has the revenue tables at the end. And a very instructive way to figure out what's significant in a tax bill is just to go through the revenue table and look for big numbers. So you mentioned um, in the beginning that 99% of it was bipartisan. What were some of the non-bipartisan parts? What were parts that actually remained in the bill, got passed, but both sides didn't like? And then who was upset with what was actually in? So, so some of the Republican members, uh, like Bill Archer, who was uh, one of the senior Republicans on Ways and Means, later on became chairman of Ways and Means in, in 95. He was adamantly opposed to the passive loss rules, uh, partly because of the retroactivity. Um there was a lot of controversy over the transition rules. In fact, the transition rules became the source of a investigation by the Philadelphia Inquirer, I believe it was, um, because uh, the transition rules gave out a lot of benefits to people. And I, and I can remember the final markup in Ways and Means. Markup is a term when the committee meets to approve legislation. The final markup, which was uh, September, October of '85. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Republicans were given 100 pages of transition rules, and they were told, uh, we're going to go back into markup in an hour. And so I met with my members, and I said, I can't possibly tell you what's in here. So we, we go in to the markup, and that Gucci Gulch, there's, an, there's a, a book written by Jeff Birnbaum, who's a friend of mine, called Gucci Gulch, uh, which was a reference to the hallway outside of the Ways and Means hearing room. By the way, I never saw anybody wearing Gucci's, okay? But it was still a good name, okay? And um, <clears throat> so we go in at 5 o'clock, and I walk up to Joe Daly, who was a friend of mine, but he was on the Democrat staff. And I said, Joe, we, our guys can't possibly look at these transition rules. Um, and, and I said, so they're going to ask for a roll call vote on all of them. And Jim Baker, who was Secretary of the Treasury, was standing between us. And Joe took a swing at me, um, and he was he was my friend before and after. Okay, well the markup ended at four a.m. in the morning, and and ended on a very uh, acrimonious note. Uh, there would have been a lot more Republican Ways and Means members who would have voted for the bill had that not happened, and it's unfortunate, um, but it did. Um, but. Um, so, so the transition rules, I'd say, were were were, were pretty partisan. Can, can we talk just um, a little well, bit about those? Because I I don't know how many people who are listening will know exactly what you're referring to. So, part of at least part of it that I'm familiar with is when this was passed, there were a whole bunch of rules that, in some cases, provided benefits to specific industries or sometimes even specific companies. Sometimes we call those rifle shop provisions. And my recollection is from the '86 Act, there were quite a few rifle shop provisions that provided specific benefits to maybe small, uh, an individual company or two or an individual industry or something that were kind of specifically targeted. And I'm just curious if that's a correct characterization first. And secondly, how those transition rules might've been influenced by, for example, lobbyists who were trying to get the senator from their state on board by providing a benefit to a company in their state or something like that? Okay, so uh, a couple answers. Um, <clears throat> the, the transition rules were not uh, addressing a provision in the Internal Revenue Code that would have been viewed as a rifle shot. What they were addressing was proposed changes to the Internal Revenue Code 
that in many cases were going to affect binding contracts that people had entered into in reliance on what the tax code said. Um, but uh, a number of those transition rules were very targeted, in some cases applied to a single company. Um, and the Philadelphia Inquirer article documented um, a lot of that. Are there, uh, are there the interesting certain companies that we could talk about? So, so there's one that sticks in my mind, and I don't know why, but it's Ruhan Trucking, which is a trucking company, I believe, in Nebraska um, that had some special transition rule. Boeing, uh, there, there were a lot of uh, airplane binding contracts, um, and we were changing dramatically um, the depreciation. And one of the biggest substantive changes uh, in the 86 Act was to eliminate what was called the investment tax credit which was a 10% credit uh, for people who made investment in plant and equipment, including airplanes. Um, and um, there were a number of binding contracts that Boeing had, uh, both to sell and to lease planes that were grandfathered um, as part of the 86 Act. And it involved billions of dollars. Now, if you're Boeing, you would argue, hey, you know, I entered into these uh, contracts based on uh, what was um, we thought the law at the time, and so we should get grandfathered. Now, having said that, we were also lowering rates, which is a benefit. And we didn't have any taxpayers come in and say, you know, I've got an income stream that I created before you propose lowering the rates, and it wouldn't be fair for me to get the benefit of <clears throat> the lower rate on that income stream. So... I'll be okay if you include a provision that says I keep paying the higher rate. Uh, we didn't have anybody show up and <clears throat> make that argument. I don't know why. It just didn't happen. Okay. So, uh, so there, I mean, there, there's a lot of arguments back and forth over whether transition rules were good, bad, good policy, bad policy. Um, in today's world, as a result of the 86 Act, there are now rules that the House and Senate have that um, target uh, – tax provisions that benefit three or fewer taxpayers. And there's actually a process uh, by which the Joint Committee on Taxation has to identify if there are such provisions so it's disclosed. Now, sometimes those get disclosed and people go, you know what, they have a great argument. So uh, it's fine. But the 86 Act did create um, enough of a controversy over transition rules to cause the process to be more transparent, which is probably a good and, thing. And did that change... Uh, like w lobbying was clearly a part of this bill. How much, just talk to us about lobbying in 86, maybe versus what you perceive it might be like today. And like, cause we had so much time. We can remember it's just like so long to, to try to influence a thing. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think lobbying's really changed that much. Um, unlike a lot of uh, industries that try to do things with things with algorithms or, you know, try to do things online. Lobbying is very much a person-to-person -person exercise. Um, and at least in the tax world, uh, the, the people that tend to be effective about it, particularly on technical issues, are tax experts. Uh, because the people on the Hill are tax experts. And if some person comes in and uh, essentially is BSing them um, because they really don't know what they're talking about, it's obvious immediately. Um, so... Uh, I, I actually don't think lobbying's changed all that much. During COVID, by the way, which we're kind of still in, at the beginning of COVID in March of 2020, I thought 
this is going to really make things difficult in terms of being able to deal with people on the Hill. It turned out to be the exact opposite because everybody was working from home and they had more time and they weren't in their offices. They weren't meeting with constituents. Uh, complete amazement of me. It was the exact opposite. People were more available, not less. Um, so, uh, so I, I don't really think lobbying's changed all that much. Although I will say um, there's more grassroots efforts that occur um, that are orchestrated. And this is going outside the scope of this um, discussion, but it's relevant to what's going on right now. There's going to be a Supreme Court nomination. Um, 20 years ago, you did not see millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on essentially grassroots, and they call it grassroots, but some people, this was Lloyd Benson, who was chairman of finance, referred to it as AstroTurf because it's fake grassroots. Um, but you now see, I mean, millions of dollars spent on this Supreme Court nomination, which 20 years ago would have been unheard of. Um, uh, but in the, in the tax lobbying world, I don't think really things are a whole lot different from when they were in 86. Although people are a little more sophisticated at trying to do revenue analysis of provisions. If you go into a member of Congress today on the tax writing committee and say, I've got this great idea. Um, the first, almost the first question out of their mouth was, how much does it cost? And has the Joint Committee on Taxation done a revenue estimate? Um, so there's a much more of a focus. And that really uh, began as a result of the 74 Budget Act. Um, which for the first time actually uh, required revenue estimates to be done. Pr prior to the 74 Budget Act, tax legislation was done and it wasn't, the revenue estimate of it wasn't done until after it was enacted, if you can believe that. Um, so revenue estimating and distributional analysis have become an integral part of the tax legislative process. Um, in 86, revenue estimating was was pretty robust. Distributional analysis, not much at all. Um, t today, it's a big deal. So it, uh, to follow up on something else you said, so you mentioned kind of this whole process started with a Reagan speech, State of the Union speech. Um, and my understanding is Reagan had some kind of role in this effort, like throughout, uh, if only as, as a cheerleader. How would you compare and contrast Reagan's involvement in the tax reform in 1986 with Donald Trump's involvement in 2017? So, I mean, as you point out, uh, Reagan led um, the effort um, and, and was a cheerleader and, you know, actually met with Rostenkowski, met with Tip O'Neill. I mean, he and Tip O'Neill were actually buddies. How, how well do you think he actually uh, understood the tax details, Reagan? Well, I'd answer the question this way. How well do you think most members of Congress understand the tax details? Not much, because they're not tax experts. But Reagan, I actually met with Reagan a number of times, including at the Reagan Library. And Reagan had sort of th these fixed points that had guided his philosophical view of things his entire life. Um, and one of them was lower tax rates are a good thing. Um, and, and so when the Treasury Department went to him and said, we want to do tax reform, and I'm sure he said basically, well, what, what do you have in mind? Lower the rates, broaden the base. I'm sure Reagan probably said, sign me up, um, you know, because that fit his philosophy. And it, it fit his life experience because in the 50s, he was in the movie industry. 
and we had a top rate of 90%, which was coming off of World War II. We had a top individual tax rate of 90%. And his buddies in the movie industry would work up until they hit the 90% tax rate, and then they wouldn't work for the rest of the year. And you can understand why. Who works for 10 cents on the dollar? Okay. So, so Reagan's view of things was, was I- impacted by his own life experience. Um, but was, was he working integrally or intimately on the passive loss rules? No, no, not at all. Um, but really, that's not the job of president. Yeah. How do you, how do you anyway. how would you view his involvement compared to Donald Trump's in 2017? Okay, so Trump sort of defies the mold on everything. Um, and uh, now, having said that, uh, he had a very good relationship with who was the then Secretary of the Treasury, Manchin or uh, Mnuchin, um, and Mnuchin was one of his closest advisors. Uh, and Gary Cohn, who was in the White House, um, was pretty close um, to Trump, even though Gary's a Democrat, although Trump used to be a Democrat. Um, so party labels maybe didn't fit people in, in that whole world. But again, Trump wasn't like sitting there going – in the case of Trump, he was adamant about certain things. He wanted the corporate rate at 21%. I mean, he was adamant about it. Had it not been for his insistence on that, it would have never gone to 21. It would have been probably 25. Uh, uh, the Democrats were prepared to go as low as 25. Um, but on, on big picture items like the corporate rate, that was clearly driven by Trump. Uh, but on the details, like the international area, uh, in the 2017 acts, enormously complex. I can guarantee you Trump didn't have anything to say about that. Um, so, you know, again, President of the United States, his, it isn't his job to be writing tax legislation. Yeah, this is, this is you know, it's really interesting to think about that because um, it just feels like we had people on board in 86 and in 2017 it was let's just slam this through is what it felt like and and that maybe is a crude characterization but i do think it kind of comes across that way um ken we're quickly running out of time but i'm i'm wondering if if you have any last things that maybe you might want to share with us about your experience in 86 and uh or any any words of wisdom going forward well, um, I, I guess what I'd say is um, the one thing about the tax code is it, it's never permanent um, and it changes in response to changes in the economy. Uh, I mean, I, 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 one thing I would point out that I think a lot of people do not understand is the most significant change in U.S. tax policy in 100 years was in the 81 Act because the 81 Act for the first time indexed individual rates to offset the impact of inflation. Now, you guys are not old enough to remember the last time we had serious inflation, but it was, you know, we were in the seven and higher in the 82 and 83. Um, in, in August of 1980, the prime rate hit 21.5%. The treasury borrowing rate hit 11.1%. Just by reference, the treasury borrowing rate today is 2 um, the prime rate is more like, you know, four or five, although the Fed is going to take it up. But indexing 
the tax rates took away something that had been a gift to the tax writing committee for decades, which was the unlegislated increase in tax revenues as a result of inflation. And that's why there were a lot of tax bills passed on a bipartisan basis um, in the in the 70s and the 60s, because Congress had all this money flowing in that they could then give away and act like they were doing people a favor, and they were just giving them back the money that they had taken from them through inflation. 81 Act index rates and cut off that inflationary uh, bonus. Um, and that kind of changed the whole dynamic. It's part of the reason the 86 Act was revenue neutral. Um, of course, the 81 Act lost a lot of revenue. The 82 Act brought back $98 billion of it. The 84 Act brought back $50 billion of it. But the 86 Act was revenue neutral. Um, and the, um, some people in Congress in the 90s wanted to eliminate the indexing of brackets because it had finally occurred to them what it was doing in terms of all this money that pouring faucet in. back on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were unsuccessful, and I predict they will never be successful, uh, particularly given our inflation level right now. Um, but it really made the tax writing committees have to be more honest um, because when it was not indexed for inflation, I mean, the money just poured in. And it, it you can have a lot of bipartisan legislation when you have a whole pile of cash that, that you can get together and decide how to spend. Um, and, and it's a tougher discipline when you don't. Well, Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. It has been very very informative for me to get your perspective. I think Jeff probably shares my opinion there. And um, we look forward to possibly chatting again sometime. So uh, this is Scott Dyring. This has been another edition of Tax Chats. Goodbye. Goodbye.